You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hey, folks, uh, I'm Jeff Edgers, the national arts reporter here at The Washington Post, and uh, we have a treat for you today. We have uh, a musical treasure. Uh, I think you know him as Kenny Loggins. I just, I found this graffiti over my shoulder. I don't know. I, I first saw it in a subway station about 1968. And, uh, <laughs> But Kenny is here uh, because he's written this book, and I, I read a lot of books, and I read a lot of books, uh, a lot of memoirs, and um, this is a wonderfully written book, but it also is very honest and very entertaining. So uh, I'm so glad we, we get a chance to talk to Grammy-winning musician, thinker, songwriter, Kenny Loggins. Kenny, how you doing? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm good. Have you seen that? Have you seen that story? I'm sorry. It's over this shoulder. You, you know about right. it? Kenny is God thing. It usually says Clapton, but I'll, I'll accept this one today. Fair, fair enough. I, I, um, so your memoir, uh, which I really enjoyed, I, I want to ask you, um, uh, it's very honest. It's, it, it has lots of detail about many things. Was there part of you that uh, was eager to do this for years and part of you that was thinking, boy, the last thing I want to do is tell this story? Yeah, well, a little of both. You're right, because uh, you do. Uh, mostly I was afraid of not remembering anything. And so uh, uh, it was challenging to want to commit to writing a memoirs. Um, but once I got into it and working with Jason made it easier, um, we just interviewed. He interviewed me for about a month or so until we had what we thought was a good timeline and, and good stories that uh, we had to figure out the order of events for a while, and, and then he would submit a rough draft of a chapter, and then I would rewrite it and put it all in my voice and use his thing as, as a memory jogger to get into the stories. Yeah, it really, um, I think about the Keith Richards memoir, which he also worked with a partner, but it's so distinctive, his voice in that book, and I feel the same way about yours, um, having oh, seen you. interviews with you. Is this a, just a small thing? So, for example, you have a line like this. I once read that Stephen King had to write some crazy amount of words each day or he'll get depressed. My first thought was, I don't want to be around Stephen King when he's depressed. So, you must have said that, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I heard an interview of him and he said he's got to write every day or he gets depressed. <laughs> it was like, okay, you don't want to see that. <laughs> So, um, and I want to remind folks, uh, tweet, tweet questions at Post Live. Uh, I'm on my own here in this room with this board, but I have a phone and I'll try to get to them if I can. And if they're good, I'll ask them of Kenny. Kenny, um, I, I'm going to go a little bit uh, chronologically here, but, you know, uh, we think about this record right here, right? Uh, yeah. you, and, uh, you and Jim Messina, uh, this is really your first um, uh, known recording. I know there were others that were made. And um, a song like Danny's Song, which is very, very well known off that record. And uh, I'd love for you to tell the story of how that song came about. Uh, uh, I know the answer to this, but is there, who's Danny and, and, and why write this song? Danny is my brother. He's four years older than me. And so for me being a little guy, you know, when I was a little kid, uh, he was God. It should have said Danny is God. And um, and he was really my musical mentor. He loved rock and roll from the very beginning. So I was born in 48 and by 52, he started my musical education. And, uh, you know, in the mid 50s, uh, 
we were singing together, he and I, and then and then he would always turn me on to whatever he loved. The, the, uh, I had a question the other day about Elvis, and um, and for me, the the original recording of Hound Dog was my holy grail. I would come home early from school, be the only one in the house, and I'd sneak into his room and uh, sneak out his records. You know, he had uh, big books of 45s. And so I pulled Hound Dog out of his collection and would play it over and over again. Him and Brenda Lee were major influences on me at that time. I mean, you've also got that wonderful Eddie Arnold song that you cover on, um, on, on your first record. And uh, I, I guess, you know, what I'm struck by reading this book is I can't believe you're like a, a Zelig or, or, you know, you're at every spot in, in human history. I mean, that song itself, you said James Taylor was going to play guitar on it and you were too persnickety and you ended up wasting all the time you had and he didn't end up playing on it, right? Right, right. Well, I had been performing it myself for at least a year. And so I had that, you know, and here I am, I'm 26 years old. I had that version in my head, but I wanted it done better. I wanted it with his style and stuff. But I basically, I overcoached him. And, and James, you know, like so many brilliant musicians, has his own way of doing things. And what I should have done was just shut up and let him interpret it his way and see where that took me vocally. But, you know, I was still brand new at it. I'd never made a solo record before. And so and I was so honored that he wanted to come in and do that. And then I and then I just sort of overproduced him. And he the, but the best part is we're we're about three hours into the session. We've only got bits and pieces of the song and he gets a phone call. So James goes into the control room and takes his phone call. Phil and I are in the control room, too. So we're pretending to not listen. And. He picks up the phone and says, yeah, well, I'm, I'm kind of recording with Kenny right now. And Well, okay, now? Okay, well, milk. Okay, diapers, eggs. Okay, honey, well, I'm going to be another hour. With, oh, you want that right now? Okay, fellas, I got to go. <laughs> and he says, guys, I got to go. I'm done. It's like, okay. And Phil, Phil Ramone, my producers scrambling to try and see if we have enough parts of the song recorded to piece it together and we didn't so that was the one that got away from me um this other uh it's so great i would have liked you to grab the phone and see if she was really on there asking right yeah i know i had the same thought like maybe she wasn't even on the call he probably texted her and said honey call me in 10 minutes i gotta get Uh, the hell out of here So Loggins and Messina. So what's interesting is you guys were, whoa, my record's falling. I don't want to scratch that thing. Here you guys are again. Uh, Loggins and Messina, you guys start out as him producing you and uh, you are the artist and then you become a partnership. It's interesting to me because you're basically the same age, but it sounds like he was like Mr. Bossy Pants. And for a while, (laughs) you were okay with that. And then that shifted. Um, I know you're you're friends. You're playing. Isn't he playing with you at some point in the upcoming? Right. I sent him the chapters before the book came out, and I said, "If you need to talk about anything, let me know, because you know we are we will be working together again." But he's, he was he cool. Say? He was cool with it. He didn't. He he said, you know, he said it's time that we told the truth, which I thought was a brave, you know, thing for him to say at this point, because we all have different versions of the truth, and my version is as a 22 year old. 
uh, looking for my own identity and trying to find it within a duo, which is really tricky. It's why those young acts break up because we we start off thinking one thing when we're 21 and 22, and we by the time we're 28, we have a whole nother way of thinking. So, but I, I pretty much reported my relationship with Jimmy through the eyes of myself as a 22 year old. The, I could easily say, oh, I thought that and I was projecting this, but the truth is this is what I believed at the time. There's one point where you actually get into a physical fight. And I'd actually say that I've, having read about bands, I think your relationship actually was pretty good. I mean, you guys were made peace at the end there. You made a lot of great music together. But at one point, you are biting his hand and he is pulling the Kenny Loggins beard. And when I say beard, I mean, it's not the thing you have now, the beard. Uh, this is accurate? Yeah, this is accurate. You know, my, we actually were reminded of this by my road manager. We interviewed a bunch of people, one of which was our first road manager, and another was Merle Brigani, the drummer for Loggins and Messina. And uh, Merle wasn't in the car at the time, but Jimmy was, Jim Recor, and um, reminded me that, that Messina and I got in a, a fight, you know, where we were literally, you know, it could have come to blows if he, if he hadn't separated the children and put them in different cars. You know, me being one of the children. The, uh, you know, it's really interesting as I read uh, as I read the book, and it's you reference doing it with with Jim, uh, but also I know you write uh, really honestly about your relationships and your marriages, and um, you shared uh, with uh, both of your ex wives um, this book, right? And and, right. and I'm wondering, did they did, were did they, was there anything they softened? Were did they were they pleasantly surprised at how they came off? What what happened when you did that? Well, they were looking for things that would be upsetting for them. And and there were places where it mattered that those pieces stay in, but I could soften the language in, in one way or another. But for the most part, like um, there's a section in the first part of the book about my, uh, our, re our relationship, Eva's and my relationship with John Travolta and Mary Lou Henner. And, and then John became, uh, shall we say, fascinated with my wife and, um, and he called me and said, well, you know, I'm not going to do anything about it. And I'm not going to sleep with her till after you guys break up as if we were about to break up. And and when I mentioned the story, because I wanted to check that story with Eve and make sure she was OK with me even telling it. And she said, geez, you know, he forgot I had an I had a say in how this went too." you know, who's just assuming that he would get away with that. <laughs> you know, it's like, like I was not comfortable with that information. And uh, that was pretty much the beginning of the end of our friendship. It was also yeah, the end well, of he, Yeah, and, and he, needs, he needs you more than you need him right now. But, you know, that's just between us. Uh, Kenny, we know uh, you have this incredible stretch during the 70s where you're basically in the same ballpark as, you know, James Taylor, who we referenced, and Dan Fogelberg, and Jackson Brown, singer-songwriters who are writing from the heart. And, uh, and then this funny movie comes up with the, I just, I actually just watched it the other night because my boy turned 12 and I felt like he could watch Caddyshack as long as I sent him out of the room for two scenes. Um, and you wrote the theme song for that, uh, I'm All Right. And uh, obviously uh, that led to a couple other very, very well-known songs. Uh, one of them that I'm fascinated by is this Danger Zone, which is the one from, uh, obviously from, uh, Top Am I forgetting the name of the most popular movie? Uh, Top Gun. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but you weren't set to sing that song. Am I right about this? 
That's right. No, I, I was in the studio. I wrote a different song for Top Gun, which is a song called Playing with the Boys for the volleyball scene. Because uh, when I was at the screening of the movie before it came out, um, there were, you know, at least 20 other acts that were considered to write something or perform something for the movie. And um, and so I figured we should write for the volleyball scene because I didn't think anybody else would. And uh, so we wrote Playing With The Boys. I was in recording that. I got a call from Giorgio in his office and they said, you know, we need a singer by Wednesday. And uh, because whoever was going to sing it has dropped out. And hmm. um, I suspect, you know, I've talked to a number of acts who said they were in line for that. Toto, uh, Ario Speedwagon, Kevin Cronin. Um, Kevin said, I couldn't hit the high notes, so I passed. And Mickey, T Mickey Thomas of the Starship said he didn't like it, so he passed. So I got lucky in that way because I think they just didn't consider me because I was already working on a song just down the street. And then finally they got to, well, Loggins is here and he's, you know, 20 feet away from your studio. Let's see if he's available. So they called me and I said, yeah, well, I, I didn't want to negotiate on the tune. I just wanted to know if it was a rocker or not because I needed a rock and roll song in my show. And yeah, he said, yeah, it's definitely a rocker. Come check it out. So, because you, know, you, didn't even, I, you didn't write that song, right? Well, I, I wrote a little of it in that I participated in, in dialing it in. I added chords. I added some stuff in the bridge. I rewrote a few lines here and there and some melody stuff. But not it wasn't substantially my creation at the beginning. It was Giorgio's. The, um, uh, it's also funny to read that you, you actually were considered or asked to write a song for Flashdance and, and, and just didn't get it together in time, right? Well, it's a little more complicated than that. I saw Flashdance on the movie Yola in Jerry Bruckheimer's office, and I thought it was really good. I wanted to be a part of it. I started working on an idea, and then I realized I don't have the time to go in the studio and record this thing for the movie because I'm starting like Thursday. I have to go on the road, and I'm not going to be available to a recording studio. So I passed on it and then I went out on the road to do my tour and the first uh, venue I went to was in Salt Lake City and the stage was about 15 feet high and um, during the darkness of setting the stage before the show started, they walked me to stage left and I took a, one or two steps too far and fell off the stage, turned around in midair and landed on my back on a packing case. Luckily, I didn't break my back, but I broke a couple of ribs. So they, they sent me to the hospital and uh, the doctors did a very good job of killing the pain and they flew me home in Donny Osmond's jet. And when I got home, the Percodan was working too well. So I called Jerry Bruckheimer and said, I'm home and I'm not doing anything. So let's go in the studio. So I went in the studio and I started working on a song that I'd written for the movie called No Dancing Allowed. And um, in the process, I think I was just a little too stoned and uh, I cut the song in the wrong key and I couldn't hit the high notes. And so then I realized, oh man, you're really not ready to be in the studio and doing this. So I, I just backed away and said, thank you. The, uh, we've got a, qu a Twitter question. It's from uh, Carrie. Um, and, uh, you know, you've had these uh, amazing collaborations. Uh, I mean, Smokey Robinson on Leap of Faith and uh, I think of, you know, relatively unknown Sheryl Crow, right? 
Um, right. You've sung with some amazing people, you and Michael McDonald. But I, I'd like to ask you, what, which collaborate Carrie really would like to ask you, which collaborations have been your, your favorites? Well, you know, I'm, I'm reminded of what Fred Astaire, when asked who his favorite dancing partner was, he never did commit. <laughs> I will say that writing with David Foster and Michael McDonald, both individually and together, was as writing partners, as collaborators, uh, they're up at the top of my list. But, you know, most of the people that I collaborated with are really great writers and um, and, and a good hang too. So it's, it's been a, a, a great experience. You know, the, the key to collaboration is, is the, the song, is the final song more than I would do individually or, or either of us, you know. In other words, is the collaboration making things better or is it going down to the least common denominator? And most of the time, the people that I got to work with made, made music with me that was better than us individually. You know, yeah. of course, like the best example is What a Fool Believes with Michael. Which I really hope people will go back and listen to. I mean, his song, his version of your song is more famous and, uh, you know, won lots of Grammys. But I love, I, I like your version. You kind of slag on it in your book, but I think it's an excellent version, too. Does he sing on that, in, on your version? Not on that version, no. He was on the road when I recorded it, unfortunately. But I will say, so, I appreciate Someone singing backup that sounds I, like him? I got a call from Teddy Templeman, who congratulated me on my version. He said, this very courageous version. <laughs> That's an interesting adjective. We'll, we'll go with that. And uh, I love Aretha Franklin's cover of it. Yeah. And it, I don't know whether you know my version that Mike and I, Michael and I reinvented the song in the Redwoods of Santa Cruz, California for the Redwoods album. And uh, that was arranged by C.J. Vanston. And, and I, I love that version as well. You know, what a fool is is the iconic because of that keyboard line. That 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 you know it's the, but we don't actually own it. That keyboard line is one of the uh, heritage keyboard lines in rock and roll. You know that you can see about six other songs that are very similar. Not that not that Michael referred to that when he made it up. We were just going off the top of our heads. But I think it's just one of those things that's inside us. Are Are you aware? Uh, you know this orb situation. Uh, this orb so situation. Okay. Are you aware that there is an actual? I found on the internet, and you find a lot of stuff. There's a, a somebody has made a tribute to this whole thing and has someone playing you playing Michael McDonald. And it's all about this orb. Are you, first, are you aware of such a thing? I, I, I think I'm, I think I saw the one you're talking about. Yeah, where he has something to do. With, I, I don't remember it exactly because it was years ago, but yeah. What, what, can you explain to us, we're children of the 21st century. What's going on here, uh, uh, Kenny? And, and why, what, what power are you deriving from this orb? And that orb is like a fishbowl with a light bulb in it. <laughs> so I wasn't, I wasn't deriving much power from it other than the power of the goldfish. Um, that, uh, that was uh, taken. I, we took that shortly after Halloween. And I, for Halloween, I had a costume made where I was a wizard. And we got, we got a kick out of it. We we're laughing about it. I said, I should use this for an album cover. So we tried it on and everybody liked it. You know, the, 
they, one of the side stories that I don't tell in the book is that that artwork behind me was uh, what they call transformational art for some reason. And the fellow that I, uh, his art was probably selling for, you know, 500 bucks a, a picture. And then after we cut the, after we cut the album and made the album cover, uh, I asked him if I could have the art. He said, no, it'll cost you $5,000. I said, wait a minute. Your stuff was five hundred dollars in the galleries. That was before you made it an album cover. <laughs> so, so I didn't buy it. Well, if you if you need me to whip one of those up, I will after we get off. Um, uh, you know, Footloose, which is such a great song. Um, it was so interesting to read that you had injured your hand in the seventies while wood carving, which really kind of took away. Uh, you, I think you put it at like twenty percent of your guitar dexterity guitar playing dexterity but that opening to that song is everything in the song right it's Dwayne Eddy it's it's a, a wonderful opening how how is your guitar playing now and and have you recovered at all from for, uh, fully from that injury not fully but I'd say I have about 75 percent of the natural it's the uh, what's called the lateral movement not this hand the other one but you know how the far part you can spread your fingers was impinged by the injury yeah. Um, and, and on that same note, you know, you obviously sing. There are people as they get older, they can't hit the notes. They can't uh, do the songs the way we want to hear them. Uh, you know, I think of people who can who are masters at that. I mean, Graham Nash, you know, uh, I, I sound like he, I feel like he sounds as good as he ever did. Uh, and you sound great. What have you done through the years to uh, be able to perform these songs doing I'm all right or or this is it. Those are not easy songs to pull off at at thirty. Never mind seventy. Well, uh, thank you for that. I I started losing my voice uh, probably mostly in twenty twenty because there just wasn't a lot of work. Uh, nobody was going out. I wasn't using it very much, and it start started to atrophy. And I realized that I had a, a trainer for staying fit that would come in, you know, three, four, five days a week, depending on when. And um, but I didn't have a trainer for my voice and it suddenly dawned on me. I should be working with a trainer so I can keep my voice in shape for when we get back to what we're doing now. And um, and so I hired a fellow out of L.A. that I heard good things about named Ken Stacy. And we work five days, six days a week to get my voice back. And um, within six months, I had the beginnings of the Bel Canto method where I was utilizing that and i had a show the other day that was a morning show so i had no time to warm up so i had to rely entirely on the method that i'd learned and it got me through it that the highest notes were still doable for me that's great um i, I want to go back to your relationships because there are two things i'm fascinated by one is darla poor darla did you let her read her section <laughs> i'm beginning <laughs> to hate you now thank you uh, <laughs> No, uh, no, I didn't. But I had written about her mostly similar stuff uh, in a book 10 years before this. I'm not sure exactly how long, but it's got to be more like 20, 20 years ago that I wrote with my second wife. And uh, so she was already a part of the zeitgeist, if you will. I mean, Darla, your your immaturity as a man is as uh, 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 notable at that point as her being the guest who will not leave 
because uh, she's just with you forever. You finally have a wonderful relationship with your first wife, Eva, and you go home and realize, oh, my gosh, Darla is still living here. I never told it's her to tough. leave, right? Yeah, I'd gone to uh, live on Jimmy's ranch and in, in, in Ojai for a while where we made uh, Mother Load. And I just forgot what was going on in my home in Santa Barbara. So when I got home, I was like, oh, we should have called this quits a long time ago. And uh, and she agreed. However, she was of two minds, as I'm sure you're aware of. I am. I want people to read that uh, that episode on their own without giving too much away. The other thing is, uh, your your second wife, Julia, you decide to have this uh, unconventional, unorthodox, whatever wedding, and you're going to have it in the nude. And uh, your older brother, Bob, at that point decides, I will not be attending such wedding. And I'll I'll be honest, Kenny, the body is a beautiful thing, but I probably would not have gone to that wedding as well. Was it actually carried out in the nude? And do you wish you had uh, not stipulated that? Well, first off, I would not have invited you to the wedding, so you're safe there. <laughs> Um, not that you're not good looking for some people, um, that, that, that you, you have to get the context of where we were coming from at that time, that she was my therapist for six years. And so our relationship was built on the level of honesty and intimacy that therapy requires. And, um, the metaphor of getting married in the nude was what we were fixated on, the idea of starting completely over. That's why I referred to that two virgins period of John and Yoko. We were in a similar headspace that we just wanted to be able to create our own lives from the ground up and not, not be too influenced or at least consciously influenced by the relationships of our parents or the world in general that preceded us. We wanted to create our own world. And so the metaphor was important. We had invited the entire guest list, which was only 12 people, to also do the same, but it rained that day, so none of us did it. But we ah. actually did, we actually did a, a, we were hiked up about an hour and a half up into the mountains of Big Sur to a hot springs. And so we were all in the hot springs together during that time. But then we got out and did the whole ceremony thing. Um, there's another question here from Aaron Corral is asking if you could share your thoughts on new musicians you admire for their musicianship and songwriting ability. Is there anybody that comes to mind? Well, there's a couple that come to mind, but but in particular, Ed Sheeran never ceases to amaze me. You know, when his stuff comes on the radio, it just jumps out. It's like he knows a hook better than most and uh, is willing is willing to go there but uh, there are all the time young writers that emerge uh, charlie puth is still very um, uh, aware he, i can i can hear his style is bridging the generations you know he incorporates some of that 80s thing into what he's doing and he's brilliant um you know we were just playing um uh, um uh, I'm blanking on his name. Uh, Tom Mish. Do you know Tom yeah. Mish is more of a jazz I guy? I'll look into it. An English jazzer, very influenced by American R&B. And I love, I love what he's doing. In a way, it's kind of, I was thinking today, I've been doing a lot of Yacht Rock interviews, and it is sort of a modernization of the marriage of pop and jazz 
which is what we were doing. We didn't think that we were creating a new genre of rock and roll back then. It was it was just where we were going, where our tastes were moving. You know, Michael was very much influenced by his his uh, uh, early days, Ray Charles and stuff like that. And uh, I don't know, I, I'm, I'm sure Motown and uh, especially uh, Marvin Gaye and people like that were influencing me. I know Stevie Wonder had a big influence on everybody at the time. So we were just taking that and extending it into our styles. Right, absolutely. Um, so tell me, you, you, you're, you're, am I right? You're playing some upcoming gigs and, and Jim will be, I'm going to do it, sitting in, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, good for Sorry. you. Very yeah. courageous. <laughs> and Jimmy and I are going to revisit Loggins and Messina at the Hollywood Bowl for their 50th, our, our 50th anniversary of, of playing the Hollywood Bowl and the Hollywood Bowl's 100th anniversary. And uh, I'm looking forward to it. I think it's an opportunity to move into gratitude for what happened and, and just be present for the audience that still wants to reminisce on that period of time. Absolutely. Well, look, uh, Kenny, what a pleasure. Um, I'm going to keep this thing up behind me, uh, even if you wouldn't invite me to your wedding. And um, <laughs> I just want to tell you, it's, it's really an honor to finally meet you and, and, and to get a chance to, to pick your brain. I wish you great success with the book and, um, and with these concerts. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.